Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We're concluding our journey through Deuteronomy, looking at chapters 27 through 34. 27 opens with us seeing the people establishing an altar at Mount Ebal and carving the the content of this book of the law on enormous stone pillars. They become, in a way, national doorposts for the nation of Israel. And we can see in the book of Joshua, chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, Joshua will renew the covenant um, here at this location on Mount Ebal at this altar. They also are going to share and recite the, the book of the law at certain intervals as a people. Recitation and affirmation become liturgical acts of worship. They still are for many of us as we hear scripture read and recited, as we engage in responsive readings that call and response, as well as sharing affirmations of faith, ways of hearing again and reminding ourselves We know that in our learning styles, the more that we can touch all of the different learning styles, some people are visual, some people are auditory, some people are hands-on. So if we can hear it, see it, and say it, we've engaged more of our learning styles to remind us. And then if we can put it into action, that reinforces it even further. And we see that applied magnificently in the festivals and the traditions of the Hebrew people. Also, the more of our senses, taste, sight, hearing, smell, and touch, the more of those we can involve, the more something becomes part of who we are. We also see the 12 curses. They put some of the tribes on Mount um, Gerizim and some on Mount Ebal, and then they declare these blessings and curses. So it becomes a choice. Which mountain do you want to place yourself on? Because there are blessings for obedience and there are consequences for disobedience. We see after every one of the 12 curses, um, this statement that begins in verse 15 that says, All the people shall respond saying, Amen. And we do that with every one of the 12 curses. I still know um, pastors who use this at the end of their prayers. When when they say conclude a prayer, they'll say, And all the people said, and we all say, Amen, together. The word Amen means so be it, let it be so. It's a way of saying whatever has just been said speaks for all of us, not just the one person praying it. But we all heard these words. We all affirm these words. We stand behind them. And notice that that's done for the curses, but not for the blessings. The blessings open chapter 28, and we see um, more consequences and warnings for disobedience that come following this set of blessings there. We also believe there's there appears to be some knowledge of um, the Babylonian exile present here, the coming exile. We saw 
it first in chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Now we hear it particularly in verses 49 through 57. Some people would say this is foreknowledge. This is um, future knowing prophecy that comes. There are others who would say this probably reflects some editing where once they had gone into exile, once they had had that experience and it has shaped and formed who they are, it became part of their book of law to say, here's, here's how we avoid and here's what we've, we have learned. The reality is that disobedience is exerting our free will to reject God. And when we reject God, we put ourselves outside of God's blessing and God's protection. And the picture that it paints here in chapter 28 is not very pleasant at all. It's a pretty cataclysmic picture. And notice that the consequences happen both to the Hebrew people and in them. One of the consequences is that they'll kind of, they will lose, lose their mind. At the very end of this chapter, we have an interesting thing happen. What is labeled in our scriptures as Christians as chapter 29, verse 1, is labeled in the Hebrew scriptures as chapter 28, verse 69. So that first verse seems to be the end, the, the last um, conclusion of part two of the book of Deuteronomy. And then part three begins with chapter 29, verse two. So what happens is that chapters 12 through 28 are most likely Deuteronomy's revision of the covenant at Mount Horeb. And remember, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And so that's the original covenant. And so this is the revisions of that covenant. And then what follows is going to be the Moab covenant. And so in chapter 29, we move into the covenant and its renewal at Moab. This shows us that covenants can be made in valleys as well as on mountaintops. Um, They can be made somewhere else other than the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. They can even be made on foreign soil. This is much like what we recognize happens in churches. Church can happen anywhere. Sure, it happens in our dedicated sanctuary spaces, and we have powerful experiences of God there. But church can happen in other places, Um, restaurants, bars, homes, backyards, camps, wherever people gather to worship and praise God, to pray and invite the presence of God. These worship experiences and relationships with God can develop. They are reminded to remember the past, to that obedience is still mandatory, and that idolatry is a strong concern. And so in every revision, including this Moab covenant, we're going to see those things being really strong. In chapter 29, verse 11, there's an inclusion of, of foreign people um, that is a little bit surprising and kind of amazing. And in chapter 29, verse 29, we are reminded that not everything is knowable when it talks about the secret things of God. We know some things and we should do what we know to do. We should have put faith and trust in what we know of who God is and leave the things that we don't know to God. But it acknowledges that we're not going to understand everything that happens all the time.
chapter 30 is going to take a little bit of a turn from blessings and curses and remind us that despite there are curses and consequences for disobedience, we have to remember that repenting and returning to obedience restores us to our relationship with God, that God doesn't give up on us. In chapter 30, verse 6, we see again them saying, circumcise your heart. Um, This was never just about the actions. It is always about what the actions are supposed to create in us. It's kind of the fake it till you make it mentality. Do it, and it will become part of who you are. We see in the New Testament more emphasis on who you are becomes what you do, that Jesus transforms us from the inside out, whereas the law was kind of trying to transform from the outside in. And this admonition to circumcise the heart echoes Deuteronomy 10.6, which also said, circumcise your hearts. In chapter 10, it was an instruction, you should circumcise your hearts. Here it's a promise. It's a promise that God will do it for us. And it's a reminder that even here under the law, there is the recognition that without the help of God, it is impossible to please God. We throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of God and allow God's Holy Spirit to transform us and create us, recreate us into the people that God wants us to be. This may be why, um, chapter 30, verse 11, why it's not too hard for us. Um, Chapter 30, verses 14, it sounds really reminiscent of the preaching of the gospel that we hear in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew chapter 3, 2, 4, 17, 1017, Mark 115, this idea that the kingdom of God is near, that it has come near, that it's at hand. And so this becomes an exhortation and an altar call here in this chapter to choose God, to choose life, to be on the right side, to be on the winning side, to be on the side of the living God is to have life more abundant and free. Chapter 31 then brings us the installation of Joshua as Moses' successor. Um, I find it interesting that the book of the law is placed in the Holy of Holies beside the Ark of the Covenant, not inside the Ark, but beside it. That's probably very fitting because the book of the law is the interpretation, the revisions, the practical applications to a large extent of the law that is on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandment tablets are placed inside the ark. So this book of the law is not a replacement for those. It is the understanding of those. So it comes alongside. And so we remember that the Horeb Covenant is symbolized by the by the ark itself and by the presence of those Ten Commandments. And the law then interprets it and brings it to us. Chapter 32 is a song of Moses. We don't often think of Moses as a songwriter or a song leader, but we have um, three of those, actually. Here is a song of Moses. It's really a poetic version of the book of the law. Um, It's intended to be both memorable and memorizable, so the people could learn to sing it. Those of us who preach know that people learn more of the music. They are shaped and formed more by the theology of our music than by the the content of our sermons. There's something about music that helps our brains remember. It's why it's important the music we choose 
um, to use in worship, but it's also a really helpful to us. How many of us memorize scripture by having learned it put to music in some way? If you go and look, Psalm 90 in the book of Songs, of Psalms is also a song of Moses. Most of those in there are um, considered authored by David, by David's group of um, prophets and priests, by the sons of Asaph. Um, there, but Psalm 90 is a song of Moses. In chapter 32, verse 6, we have the first explicitly male parental metaphor used for God in the Pentateuch. So here we are at the very end of the last book of the of the Torah, of the law, of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, and we finally have God being called Father personally. Now, it has been alluded to in other areas. Um, God calls Israel a firstborn son in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. Um, God carries the nation of Israel as one carries a child, Deuteronomy 1.31. But here we finally have God being called Father. In chapter 32, verse 8, um, when the Most High apportioned the nations, when He divided humankind, He fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. God's make us a little bit uncomfortable to hear that in plural, since we believe in one God, the one true living God. The word for God or deity can also refer to heavenly beings. Later in in this book, before it closes, it's going to be used to refer to angels. So it can be heavenly beings, not necessarily other pagan gods. But some of the manuscripts um, have the word Israel here instead of God's. That it, that God fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of Israelites, which might make more sense there. Um, this is also one of the foundations for what's called biblical numerology, um, that, that there were numbers involved, that there was a, a division and according to numbers. And so numbers have meaning in Hebrew. Names have, have meanings. Um, names are often given numbers that, that go with them. So we have 40 is a significant biblical number. We have, um, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. And so for, it can also be a euphemism for an extended period of time. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. We have seven days of the week. We have, um, seven days in between, for each Sabbath. We have festivals that last for seven days. We have seven a cycle of seven years. And at the end of seven cycles of seven years, we have that jubilee that we've talked about. So this becomes one of the odd, really, foundations for that. In chapter 32, verse 15, it refers to Jeshurun, a name. And the name means beloved one. And it's a poetic name for Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And then Israel becomes the name of the entire people. In this case, it's referring to the person of, of Jacob or Israel. The poem takes a decidedly merciful turn toward the end. Um, but we always remember that mercy and forgiveness are not a license to sin and to disobey, 
but that the gracious response of a loving parent to a rebellious child um, is always mercy and forgiveness. Um, So consequences and discipline are loving lessons of a loving parent, that the good parent is not the one who allows a child to run wild, to have no boundaries, no guidelines, who never establishes any boundaries and teaches them appropriate behavior. The loving parent is the one who does those things, not harshly, not mainly, not abusively, but sets appropriate boundaries and teaches um, a child how to behave, how to grow into a productive, wonderful human being. Chapter 32, verse 43, it says, O heavens, in some manuscripts, in some translations, and others it says, it refers to the nations. Let's look at that for just a second. Chapter 32, verse 43, praise, O heavens, his people, Worship him, all you gods, for he will avenge the blood of his children and take vengeance on his adversaries. Some of the the manuscripts used for translation say, praise, O nations, his people. So it's calling for other nations of the world to recognize that this is God's chosen people. Some of those manuscripts call for all of creation, O heavens, to acknowledge the chosenness of God's people. And here we see this other use of the plural with a small g, gods, all you gods. In this case, we believe it refers to angels, which is also why it leaves the word heavens or nations in a little bit of controversy because either would seem to fit well here. Chapter 33 then moves us into the fourth and final part of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Moses is now instructed by God to go and prepare to die. He doesn't. He has one final last word um, to give. And But this instruction in, is a little different than what we heard in chapter 137, 326, and 421. And we have another song, so a third song attributed to Moses, This one is not a song of witness like the last one. This one is a song of blessing and blessing for each of the tribes of Israel. Chapter 34 becomes the conclusion to this book of the law. The burial place of Moses is unknown, but scripture tells us that God buried Moses, um, which is interesting to me. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab beside Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Um, I just, I think it was that that just fascinates me that um, God buried this great servant Moses. We're also told that he was a hundred and twenty years old. He was still solid and healthy. He was of his right mind and fairly able-bodied, and yet he dies. I had a note in my study Bible that said, neither his piety nor his usefulness exempts him from the inevitability of human death. Um, As you may have noticed, there are often some odd little pieces of Scripture, some odd things that come out in the stories and we wrestle to understand exactly. 
In verse 5 of chapter 34, it says in my new Revised Standard Translation, Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. That may mean that the Lord spoke, that it was Moses' time. Um, Moses had been commanded to go away from the people and prepare to die. However, the literal word in the Hebrew means mouth, um, died at the Lord's mouth. And so there are some who believe that God took Moses with it with a kiss. Wesley quotes rabbis who who believed this. So it becomes part of our Methodist tradition that Wesley believed that. It's the taking back of the breath that God breathes into us that gives us life. So it's actually the uncreating or the decreating of a person. That essence is returning to God. And there are some that believe that this is how it ends for all of us, that someone comes and takes our breath out of our body. Very often when people die, they have a final exhale that is pretty noticeable. And that it might be an angel, it might be your guardian angel, it might be the grim reaper, but that for Moses, it was God himself that was there at the moment that Moses, his great servant, um, leaves this earth and returns to him. And so we close the book by saying a lot of praise for Moses. Moses comes really close in the eyes of of Scripture and of the Hebrew people to living the perfect life. Um, No one else ever had the relationship with God that Moses has had here. No other human being has ever seen the face of God and lived. It was a very unique relationship to know the Lord in quite that way. No one else had that kind of relationship. No one else has lived a perfect life until Jesus. And Jesus was completely human and completely divine. So it makes it a, a little different. Of course, he, he was God come in the flesh, so he would have that kind of relationship and ability to stand in the presence of God. But it makes very clear that Moses was a pivotal and important um, character, uh, an important player in the history of Israel and of the nation becoming who they are. And with that, the book of Deuteronomy closes, and so does the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that make up the history and the law of the first part, the first movement of God's story of interaction with humankind. We have gone from being an unformed existence through creation to an unformed people groups, to a a coalesced people chosen by God, led out of slavery, led to a particular point, shaped and formed by obedience to the one true living God. Um, And so this becomes the story into which we as Christians find ourselves grafted. I hope you've enjoyed the journey through the book of Deuteronomy. I look forward to hearing what has sparked interest and questions for you.